All right, Genesis 35. It's a lot easier for me to say that this week than it was for my last week. Amen. We're headed out of the darkness. A very original title for our message tonight, simply entitled Back to Bethel. I don't know how many sermons you'll find if you do a search that's entitled Back to Bethel. I guarantee you none of them will line up exactly with mine, <laughs> but, uh, but probably a lot of over overlap and different things, but uh, tremendous. Really the first 15 verses encapsulate our study, and um, I want to try to close out, though, our understanding of chapter 35 and 36, because uh, from here forward, we're going to transition. I think you'll see that chapter 35 and chapter 36 leads to a, um, a drawing down of Moses as he's closing his account and the narrative on the life of Jacob. So Jacob's uh, Jacob's writing into the sunset here in these chapters. And chapter 36, uh, a lot of names in there would be quite the exercise of pronunciation if you were to go and try to read through all of them or, oratorically. Uh, but a long list of the kings of Edom, right? These are the descendants of Esau listed in chapter 36. So that's how that, uh, that chapter will close. And all of these details are important. I draw your attention to chapter 35. And uh, verse, uh, well, let's just begin reading in verse number one. And God said unto Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean. And change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them. They did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother, but Deborah. Rebekah's nurse died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak. And the name of it was called Avon Bachuth. And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padanaram and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob, thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee will I give it. To thee I will give it. And to thy seed after thee will I give the land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him even a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. 
And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him, Bethel. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we return in our heart and mind with Jacob and his journeys back to Bethel. Lord, may we apply this the way that we need to in our life, that we can have our own sort of return to Bethel in a spiritual sense, that we can look and see your hand in our life, Lord, and may we, may we be cleansed and pure before you, that we can see you working. God, I pray that you would bless this message. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Amen. Uh, there's one, one preacher that told a story about being up in Michigan on uh, Lake Michigan. I've never been to Lake Michigan, so I can't tell the story, but I'll tell his instead, right? We can do that. Uh, and he told a story about being up on Lake Michigan. Now, I've had similar, similar things, you know, with boats and Maybe you can think of a boat that you, uh, the name uh, stood out to you. I'm sure we have some in our midst that have many boat names they'd rather soon forget. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> every one of them, yeah, yeah, the only good boat is one that somebody else owns, right? Because otherwise it's a, and the, the good boat is the last one you were on. Yeah, that's it. So one summer, while uh, boating on one of Lake Michigan's northern bays, this uh, preacher recalled, a sparkling 40-foot yacht slipped quietly into the bay and dropped anchor, where it then sat majestically, riding the gentle swells with its radar in regal rotation. You see, I can, it's not my writing, so I'm telling you I didn't make that up. This is somebody else. Her stern came around, and I saw her name, the preacher said, residuals. boat was named Residuals, for those that need to hear it a second time. <laughs> residuals. The boat was named Residuals. Anybody get it yet? <laughs> Have you thought through it? Well, for this preacher, he said it was instantaneous. I knew exactly why they named that boat Residuals. Well, evidently, whoever owned that boat had made some mighty good investments that had then turned around and become a blessing for them to be able to own residuals. Now that's a two-edged sword though, isn't it? It's nice when we can tell stories about it being on the name of a boat, residuals, but what about when it's the placard above your prison cell, residuals, because of how you didn't or you invested wrongly in life. So, I mean, it is a double-edged sword, right? We reap what we sow and those kind of things. Uh, well, as we come to Genesis 35, I want to tell you, you can probably just in your mind when you read it, placard over Genesis 35, the name of that book, Residuals. Because when you come to the, this account in the life of Jacob, he's going all the way back to where he started when he left his father's house. And God's calling him back to that place. And so now, though he left originally with nothing, nothing but his staff in his hand, which is key when you read this, because there's somebody that comes up in what we read that I'm wondering, wondering where did she come from? <laughs> anyway, Jacob left with nothing, and he returns with all the blessings that God has multiplied in spite of who he is. And Jacob can't help but look around and consider how good God's been to him, just surveying all that God has done with the idea of residuals. Simply because God promised him that he would be his God and God would bring him back to his land, his father's land, in the land of Canaan, all the way back to Genesis 12 to the 
blessings that he had promised his granddaddy. So the narrative conveys a positive change in Jacob's life. It records the residuals of sin. As we say, the chickens are coming home to roost. Chapter 35, so completely different from chapter 34. Completely different. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to have a radio program. He described it uh, like this, the contrast. He said, chapter 34 does not mention God. It's full of lust, murder, deceit, wretchedness. But this chapter, 35, is filled with God. His name appears ten times, plus once as God Almighty, El Shaddai. Plus eleven times in the names Bethel, Israel. The contrast is striking, as it always must be in the life of a believer living out with God. And again, when he returns to the will of God, Jacob is going to come back and get right with the Lord. He's going to wind up being where God wants him to be. Remember last time we talked about Jacob kind of uh, taking his time in Shechem and not going all the way in what God had called him to do. And God comes to him again. I'm so thankful that God doesn't leave us alone. Even when we try to live and settle down without him, he just keeps pleading and coming and saying, it's time to go a little bit further. Time to go a little bit further. So happily, chapter 35 here records Jacob's turnaround newfound obedience. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. But also <clears throat> tells us about some sad residuals. Sad residuals. And yet, even in this, we can find hope as Jacob comes back to the will of God. He's going to be in the center. Notice, first with me tonight, Jacob's reception of the word of God. Jacob's reception of God's word. Chapter 35 and verse number 1 opens with this. Say it with me. Jacob's reception of God's word. Jacob's reception of God's word. Verse number 1, he's called to go back to the beginning. God said unto Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Jacob, you've been living in Shechem too long. Jacob knows it's time to get out of Shechem. Remember how chapter 34 closed? He um, rebuked his sons, not because of what they had done, but for how they had tarnished his name. Remember pointing that out? And that was a sad commentary, I think, on Jacob. What about Dinah? Well, here, you know, think about that, because he was terrified. He said, all the, all the surrounding... You know, tribes are going to come after us for this. He was terrified. I want you to keep that log in your mind because God just kind of flips that right on its head in this chapter. He calls him to go back to the beginning, back to where it all started. When Jacob left his father's house, he stopped in Bethel. He made an altar there. And we go back to you know chapter uh, 28 and we see what God, you know, what Jacob did there back to the beginning make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother well let's go back Genesis 28 
Remember he had a dream about that ladder, the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And in verse number 10, Jacob went from Beersheba, went toward Haran, lighted upon a certain place, tarried there all night, because the sun was set, and he took up the stones of that place and put for, put them for his pillows. <laughs> we were talking about that recently, weren't we sleeping on pillows of rocks? No, thank you. Uh, lay down in that place to sleep. Jacob was a real camper, gentlemen, real camper. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. Isn't this striking? Jacob's leaving. He's heading to his uncle's house in Haran. But God stops in the middle of it and says, right here where you're sleeping, Jacob, this is it. You're going to come back here one day. I'm going to bring you back, and you're, you're going to have my blessing on you, and I'm going to give this to you. What did Jacob do to deserve that? Absolutely nothing. Hey, you know, Jesus left heaven. All the splendor and all the glory of heaven. And he came and dwelt among men. When he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. But before that, when he was with his disciples, he told them in John 14 that he was going to a place where they couldn't come yet, but eventually they would come. And he said of that place, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that, hey, guess what? What did you deserve? What, what did you do to deserve that? Sinner, what did you do to deserve heaven? Absolutely nothing. Yet Jesus says that where I am, there ye may be also. What a what a blessing. This is the God of the Bible. This is the grace of God that says, You do not deserve this, but because of my goodness, I will make a way for you to have it. Now, Jacob has to walk by faith, just like Abraham did, right? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Right here in this place, Jacob is going to say, since you've promised all this to me, you're going to be my God, I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to give you tithes of all. It's been 20 or 30 years since that night when he had rocks for pillows and had that dream, and God promised him, you're coming back here. It's been 20 or 30 years. And now he's coming back to Bethlehem. God says, go back there. Go back to that place. It's time to go back to the beginning. As a young man, I trusted Christ at age 14. And I remember shortly after I trusted Christ, I was I was afraid. I was fearful. Because I knew the kind of world I lived in. And I knew the kind of friends that Paulding County, Georgia could make for me. And I knew all the things that high schoolers do and all the trouble that high schoolers can get in, all the things that can ruin and wreck a life. And I remember talking to somebody at the church where I got saved and asking them just some counsel. I wish they would have given me some better counsel than what I got. I kind of flabbergasted them with my question, I think. They weren't expecting me to ask such a question on such a night when everything was supposed to be just 
fellowshipy, and here I'm asking deep things of life. And the answer was rather shallow. Well, it's kind of like read your Bible and pray kind of answer. It wasn't really good guidance for me. Well, I got away from the Lord after I got saved. There was a time when God came back into my life. I knew I wasn't where God wanted me to be. I was experiencing severe consequences in my life because of decisions I had made to walk away from Him and just live really without Him. I got to the place, I'm being very vulnerable to you tonight, I understand that, but I want you to see how it relates with Jacob in some ways, because in some sense I see Jacob in me. And if, and if you will be honest with yourself, friend, you'll see Jacob in you too. He's there. I remember getting to the place where I wanted sin so bad, I wanted the lust of my heart so bad, I actually prayed to God, and I said, leave me alone in this, let me do what I want, basically. And God said, you got it. Don't ever ask God that. Don't ever come to the place where you have to pray like that to God, because you want something so bad. He did. He let me, but you know what? His grace never let me go too far. He never put upon me anything that I couldn't bear, and he never made, he never put anything upon me that didn't have a way of escape if I would be willing to take it with him. And I'm thankful for Christmas Eve, 1997-ish, somewhere around there, if I remember the years right, when God's word came to me again through my grandma. Now, I'm not talking about Pentecostal New Revelation here. I'm talking about God using a human being to get me to see His truth and His will. No new, no, no new revelation. Simply just reaching out to me through my grandmother with words that would draw me back, ultimately, to the Bible. Back to where it all began. Back to where I had started those years before and walked away. And I'm so thankful that God didn't give up on me and say I'm done no he showed up with his grace that I did not deserve and he pulled me out of the mire he set my feet upon a rock and established my going and to make a long story short it was a course of time it was a progress it was a work of grace of God in my heart I started getting into the Bible and the Bible started changing my mind and transforming my life and I came to the place eventually where I should have made this decision at 14. But all those years went by and I didn't. And I got further away. I came to the place where I understood Jesus better and what he did for me. And I, I came to love him more and more and more. And I said, I need to be where he wants me to be. And I joined the first church I ever joined in my life out of my own volition. Because I knew that's where God wanted me. And when I did... I was counseled about baptism, finally. And when I got baptized, because I'd already been saved at 14 now, all these years later, I got baptized. That was, that was me putting my hand to the plow, saying, I'm not going back into the world. I'm done. I'm out. And I set my hand to the plow, and I've not looked back since. And I'll tell you, God has blessed. God has blessed. I'm going to encourage you. You know, there's people in your family, maybe. If, if it's not you right here tonight, there's somebody you know that you need to be like my grandma was to me. God's going to use you to call them back to Bethel. Be sensitive and tender to the Holy Spirit for that. Let God use you 
to call them back to Bethel, back to the beginning. Think about the times in your life where maybe you strayed and, and were that sheep that went belly up and started to get bloated in your life. Right? That's pretty disgusting, right? Sheep are nasty creatures. They're just dumb, defenseless, totally dependent. Sheep are just sheep. Sometimes we wind up that way, don't we? What do they call it when the sheep turns belly up? Anybody remember? There's a term that the shepherds call it. It's like he's a... Oh, what, what do they call it? Where he just it gets on on his back and all four legs are up and they can't do anything because they can't roll over and they just sit there. And then the, you know if they're there long enough, they begin to swell and bloat because they can't do it. They can't get out of that position. How many times do we get like that with the Lord? Just going after grass we want to enjoy, grass that fades. The Lord has to come and scoop us up in His arms, throw us over His shoulders. Say back to the fold. Jacob, it's time to come back to Bethel. Let's go back to the beginning. Hey, the good news of the gospel, Warren Wiersbe, the late Warren Wiersbe, it's sad to have to say that now, but the late Warren Wiersbe, he just passed away for those who may not know. He's with his Lord in heaven now. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to stay the way we we are. No matter how many times we fail the Lord, we can go home again if we truly repent and obey. Jacob, it's time to go back home. It happened to Abraham, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. It happened to Isaac, chapter 26, verse 17. It happened to David, 2 Samuel 12. It happened to Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It happened to Peter. Just go read John 21, verses 15 to 19. And now it's happening to Jacob. Jacob, it's time to go back time to go back home. When he gets there, God tells him, make there an altar unto God. Make there an altar unto God. Jacob is going to receive God's word. He's got to go back to the beginning, and when he gets back to Bethel, he's got to build an altar for God. (coughs) Derek Kidner wrote uh, his commentary on Genesis, and he had a thought here that struck me. Bethel occupies something of the same focal place in Jacob's career that the birth of Isaac occupied for Abraham. Think that through. Abraham's great testing moment came in chapter 22 when we studied through that. It was Abraham was called on by God to sacrifice Isaac. This is this is sort of a similar thing that Kidner is saying about what happened and occurred in the life of Jacob. Jacob, you've got a test here. Are you going to pass this test or not? His test is, are you going to go back to Bethel, and when you get there, are you going to build an altar like you're supposed to, or are you going to stay in Shechem? It's up to, it's really up to Jacob. Now here we might get into a discussion about the sovereignty of God and the foreknowledge of God as it comes to the will of man. We have a lot of Calvinist friends, Reformed friends, that, yeah, I suppose I can call some of them friends. Uh, No, I can't, really. There's some good people. They just, they're they're a little skewed on this. And they understand there's some problems with it. So they they, they place, you know, verbiage upon verbiage. And when you read their commentaries, it's like, they know there's a problem when you say God already knows who's going to, 
you know, who, who's going to choose and what they're going to choose and all of that. And then, but when you get into the predetermination aspect of they know there's issues with that, with God's character. How can you have a God that's going to predetermine, you know, this fate for somebody? So they have to pile on the verbiage so much so that they kind of skirt around the real issue and they don't have to really address it. That's how they get by that, by the way. If you're ever in a conversation with a Calvinist, that's how they'll, they'll do it. I can illustrate it for you this way. Does God know that does God know that Jacob's going to wind up back in Bethel? But does Jacob have a free will? Could Jacob choose to stay in Shechem? He could. How are we going to balance these two? God in his foreknowledge journey knows that Jacob's going to wind up back there. But here's here's how they, they break it down, okay? They say that, you know, the foreknowledge and the determination, predetermination, the the decrees, the decrees of God, the decrees are the words you want to watch out for when you start hearing terms like that. Say that, you know, me picking up this and dropping it, that was pre-decreed by God. You know, everything is... So basically what they do is they take God and they turn him into a computer programmer that just programs everything and predetermines how everything's going to work out. We've got a God that's so much bigger than ones and zeros. Yeah, I just, I'll leave that right there. So did God, you know, predetermine that I would pick this up and drop... Is he, is he really, you know, into that much minutia that everything we say and everything we do is pre... It gets ludicrous when you pull it down to those kind of... They even take it down to cells. They say every movement of every electron and proton and, and all of that's all predetermined in your body. Think that for the next time you're dealing with somebody who just got a diagnosis of cancer. God predetermined those cells to do that? You see what kind of God you wind up with in the end? That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Bethel. Let me illustrate it to you this way. It's not perfect, but this will kind of help maybe give the right, the biblical perspective on it, I think. Now, how many of you like to play chess? Okay, we've got some that like to play chess. How many of you would rather play checkers? Because checkers is easier to figure out. Okay, checkers is way faster, too. You don't have to spend days. Okay, now, we can talk about chess and checkers, but, but let's use chess, okay? So we've got the board ready. Let's, let's say that I'm going to play chess with God. So I have my pieces. He's got his pieces. It's never a good idea to play chess with God, by the way. He knows every scenario of a checkmate that could ever occur. But let's let's think through the illustration. Okay, let's let's let this play out the way that, that we came in our mind. So I get the first move, right? I take my pawn and I move my pawn up two spaces. Whichever pawn I, I want to pick, I move that up. Did God know I was going to make that move? Did God take my hand and move the pawn that I moved? Did, did He do? No, I took my hand. I did that of my own free will, and I moved that pawn. But God knew exactly which one I would move. You see, he's always ahead of us. But it does not negate the responsibility we have in our free will. And so when Jesus says, whosoever, whosoever, come. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. You have a responsibility to acknowledge your sin before God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Call on the Lord and you shall be saved. You know, that's tying it into salvation. But does that kind of help you see? God knows Jacob's going to wind up back in Bethel. 
No question about it. But God puts it on Jacob. Jacob, you've got a responsibility in this or you're going to do what's right. It's Jacob's responsibility to get his house in order. Say, pack it up, clean it up, clear it out. We're heading to Bethel where I'm supposed to be and I'm going to build an altar there because God told me to do it. Time to go back to Bethel. At Bethel, Jacob had made some vows to the Lord back in 28 that we read. He said, since you're my God, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, this, and this. Remember those promises he made? Now it's time to fulfill them. Jacob, it's time to keep your word. It's been 30 years, 20 or 30 years at least, and he's still in Shechem for about a decade when God had already brought him back to the land. And he, why is he taking his time like that? Why is he lingering in Shechem when he knows he needs to be in Bethel serving and worshiping God, God and the will of God and all the problems at Shechem come into his life? Why is he tarrying at Shechem? Well, I think because he's got because some, he's got some sin that he doesn't want to let go of yet. He's got some uh, idolatry in his family that they're serving other gods. Remember Rachel when she left, she took old Laban's teraphim. Yeah, that's going to come home to roost. Remember Jacob, he kind of uh, said a bad thing there when he didn't realize he put her life on the line and he sealed her her fate when he said, "Whoever you find it with." See, see, God keeps notes on those things. Why is Jacob lingering at Shechem? No longer. He's going to arise. He's going to head back to Bethel. One writer applied it like this. Many of the problems in the Christian life and in the local churches result from incomplete obedience. How true is that? How many times have I suffered in my Christian walk because God wanted me to go this far and I only went this far? Okay, Lord, I'll do the. I won't do that, but I'll do this, and we fall short, wind up with issues, problems. We know what the Lord wants us to do. We start out to do it, but then we stop. We don't continue to obey God. We don't continue to accomplish His will, even when what we've done starts to die, and we see the consequences of sin all around us. We still can't let it go, Jacob can see the consequences around him in Shechem. And yet he lingers until God shows up and says, get out of there. We don't continue to obey God. What Jesus said to the church at Sardis, he says to us. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 2, let me just remind us of what the Lord Jesus said to the church at Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, and verse number 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. When you go back to Bethel, Jacob, you're going to do it right this time. When you go there, you're going to build an altar. It's time to go back to the beginning. Notice, secondly, not only Jacob's reception of God's word, but say this with me, Jacob's rededication to God's will. Jacob's rededication to God's will. He's received God's word. Now what's he going to do? God already knows he's going to make the right move. He's going to wind up in Bethel, but Jacob has a decision. Verse number 2, back in Genesis 35, Then Jacob said to his household, and to all that were with him, we're getting back into God's will. He rededicates to that. How's he going to do that? 
hey, we've got to get right. We've got time to purge out the world. Time to cleanse our hearts and our lives. Time to be clothed in the Lord's righteousness. Let's look at it. Look at his words in chapter 35, verse 2. He said to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you. That's step number one. You've got to get the world out so that the Lord can fill you. And you can be filled with the Spirit. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The word put away here, does that sound like any other marriage covenant language anybody's heard? To put away is to divorce yourself from it. Cut it off. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Now, let's let's think this through, okay? okay. Are we just going to throw Jacob's whole family under the bus and say they're all just a bunch of idolaters? I don't think we can do that. There might be a logical explanation as to where these things came from. Think back to chapter 34. What happened at the end after Simeon and Levi had their go at it? All the rest of the brothers went in, and what did they do? They pillaged and they plundered. So it might not mean that they're serving idols in the sense that, you know, Rachel is taking the teraphim, the images of her father, maybe hanging on to some idolatry. Maybe they were. Maybe they were bowing down to this stuff and actually worshiping it. The text is silent on it. But what we can do is connect the context and say they had them in their possession. Whether, you know, they made them themselves or whether they stole them from Shechem, they had them. Bottom line, Jacob says, we're not keeping those. Those have to go away. You know, when I started getting right with God, I had a lot in my life that had to go away. CDs? Use, yeah, you guys don't use CDs anymore. It's MP3s or, uh, or uh, you know, wave files or what is it? <laughs> All these music files. CDs, they're a little plastic thing that you put in a player and you push a button and play music. You know, the, the older folks would maybe think of 8-tracks, and then even older folks would think of LPs, and then even older Victrolas, and, okay. We'll just cover the whole gamut of the last couple hundred years. Amen. Phonographs, yeah. So. Well, if you have any antique equipment, you might want to uh, get it priced before you destroy it. Maybe you can get some money out of it, but regardless, I think you understand the point. There's some things that need to get purged out of our life. Right? You've heard the stories of youth camp where they have the, the big burn barrels and they come and everybody burns their books and burns their CDs and their music and all this stuff. I'll tell you, if you're gonna if you're gonna go back to Bethel and do it right, you've got to get the world out. Might be a good time to take an inventory and maybe go through some of these things that you have kind of hidden away and, and maybe you plundered them from somewhere along the way or pirated them from something. It's time to get rid of that stuff. It's time to just let it go. It's holding you back from serving God. It's not worth it. It's not worth your relationship with God to keep that stuff around. Just get rid of it. Boy, the list gets really long here in Colorado, doesn't it? Anywhere it gets long, but here it seems like it's getting longer every day. He says, put these things away, the idols. Now, he's going to take these. He's going to bury them under a tree. If you read... uh, some other accounts and numbers and different things I think I was researching. Um, when people are getting rid of this kind of idolatrous material, this is a proper way to dispose of it. 
you're going to bury it under this tree. It's almost like a desecration to the tree, right? It, it doesn't mean that they're going to come back and get it later. They're, this is a burial of this. They're buried it deep, and it's gone. They're getting rid of it. And they're leaving. They're heading to Bethel. Now, it also mentions the earrings, right? I think the best connection you can make on this is Exodus 32. They took their earrings and gave them to Aaron. And Aaron, you know, that little funny part where he says, I threw in the fire and out poof came a cow. Yeah, Aaron, sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and Moses was born yesterday. Sure. Yeah. That, I always laugh when I read that. Because it's out poof came a cow. It's, okay. Wow. Earrings. Now, were they were they the earrings in the people's ears? I'm almost going to say no. I don't think it was. Because the images would be in the shapes of these gods. And these gods, maybe they had the gold earrings and the images. And so, rather than, you know, pull the gold out, it's like Jacob says, all of it. All of it. I want all. I want the image and I want the gold because you're not going to take it and make another one later. I want it all. So, whether it was theirs or in the images, you can, you can do your research on that and figure it out yourself. But I think either way, you got to turn it in. These earrings are connected to the idolatry somehow, some way. And Jacob says, even down to the smallest piece, how thorough do we need to be when we purge out the world? Cleansing our hearts and lives. Secondly, he says, put away the strange gods that are among you. And secondly, be clean. This has a ceremonial aspect to it. Okay? When he's saying be clean, he's not just saying go take a shower. They're not right with God. They can't be. After chapter 34, you tell me how they can be right with God. Their hands are guilty of shedding innocent blood. And that, by the way, murder is not something that can be purged out and cleansed by rituals like this, unless you look at Jacob treating this like a warfare scenario. And I kind of explained that to you. Explain that's a good southern word, by the way. I explained that to you. In that Jacob here, we're having tribal warfare. So this is, he's looking at it as military war. That it's one tribe against another. So there are ramifications in the law later on, obviously, in numbers, that allows for soldiers who have to take lives and shed blood on the battlefield to be able to get right with God in ceremonial cleansing. When he says be clean, he's saying it's time to clean it up. You've got blood on your hands. Maybe while he's saying this, they're still covered in the splatter. I don't know. But they're they're guilty before God in this. And there's no way they can expect to worship God with this. Remember what God told David when he was trying to build the temple? He told him, no, he can't do it. Why? Because his hands were blood guilty. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about murder and hatred. Friend, if you're going to get right with God, you got to turn in all the earrings, you got to turn in everything, okay? All Even down to the minutiae. But you've also got to get your heart right and cleansed before Him because if you've harbored, harbored hatred toward anybody, there might be some forgiveness that needs to occur. There might need to be some confession before the Lord, 1 John 1, 9 style, that you need to get clean before God. When you get the world out, that's great. But you leave it unswept and unkept, guess what? The devil's going to do it with seven worse. Don't take the next step and get clean before God and actually come clean before Him. It's not enough to just put the stuff away. You need to get right with God. Are you with me? 
Then Jacob says this, thirdly, put, up, put away the strange gods, get rid of the idolatry, be clean, and thirdly, change your clothes. I would apply this spiritually. You know, in Zechariah chapter 3, we have an account where uh, Joshua the high priest is cleansed and he's given new garments. I think this is a picture of what the Lord does for us. And this is what he did for me when he saved me. The old has passed away. I have the new. But it's my job to put on the new as a Christian. Put on Christ. Put on that new garment. Put on his righteousness. You see the New Testament applications, not interpretation, applications that we can draw from this. Will you purge yourself of the world? Will you get right with God? And will you put on Christ? Then you're ready to get back to Bethlehem. You're ready to walk with God. You're ready to be in the center of God's will. But don't come back half-heartedly. Purge out the world. Cleanse your hearts and your lives. Be clothed in the Lord's righteousness. Draw nigh to God. Look at verse 3. Let us arise and go up to Bethel. It's time to draw nigh to God. Remember what James's advice was? He said, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Why? Because these believers, these Christians, were fighting amongst themselves. They were lusting in their hearts. They couldn't get their prayers answered. Chapter 4 is full of problems and pastoral advice. And James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Sounds a lot like Jacob, doesn't it? It's time to get clean. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. Submit yourselves to God. Draw nigh to Him. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. If you read chapter 4, there's all kinds of advice in there. Draw nigh to God, the God of our salvation. Look at verse 3. He says, we're getting up, we're going to go to Bethel, and I'm going to make an altar there unto God. Which God is this, Jacob? Oh, I'm glad you asked. It's the God who answered me in the day of my distress. He remembers. I was hightailing it away from Esau who was about to kill me for what I did and stealing the blessing and the birthright and all of that. And God answered me in my distress. Sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? Psalmist. He answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. That's the God. The same God. Draw the night of God. Notice verse 4. Verse number 5. So they did it. Isn't that amazing? Jacob said, turn it all in. They said, here's the inventory, Pops. Take it all. Burn it, bury it, whatever you got to do with it. We're done with it. God give us families that when mom or dad stand up and they say, kids, it's time to get right with some things. The kids have sensitive and hard enough to say, here it is. Here's all of it. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not covering anything over. Here it is. Purge it. Can I tell you, there's such joy, really, in a parent's heart when kids are honest enough to do that. Now, these are these are older boys probably by now. You know, mid-teens, early 20s, maybe 30s and 40s, depending on where you take this in the life of Jacob. I don't, I don't take it that far. I think, you know, mid-teens, early 20s, that kind of thing. Still, Dad says, we're going to do this. Everybody says, we're to it, Dad. We've got it. Here's everything. Here's everything. And Jacob takes it, and he buries it under the oak which was by Shechem. Verse number 5, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them. These were the cities that Jacob was so afraid of before, and he was terrified of them. The fear of man bringeth a snare. That woke you up. I'm trying to terrify you here with the preaching. I'm just kidding. 
For those listening, that was a water bottle I just uh, pointed off of the desk here. It's, I didn't even touch it. I just pointed it. And there it goes. Ow. Ow. <laughs> Power of the Word of God. Ow. Okay, didn't do it. Uh, so let's stretch, stretch that. There. Notice God's protection for those who follow Him. Can you see that in verse 5? When Jacob says we're going to get right with God, we're going to do it God's way. Let me move that down here. We're going to do it God's way. When Jacob goes back, he's got nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Let me give you a statement. Wiersbe said, again, he said, when God's people are doing God's will and God's way, they can depend on God's provision and protection. And he quotes Isaiah 41, 10, 14, 44, 2, and 8, and 43, 1 through 5. Isaiah 40. When you're doing God's will in God's way, you can be assured of God's protection and provision. That's a blessed thought. The Lord watches over those that are going to serve and follow Him. Don't hesitate. Hey, it's time to get that stuff out. Don't bat an eye about it. Don't even think twice. You are going to be right where God wants you to be. Don't let the devil come in your ear and whisper, oh, what about this and what about that? What are these people going to say? What are they? Just get right with God. He's going to take care of it all. He's going to watch over you. You're going to have peace. Thirdly, and we're done, notice Jacob's revival in worship of the Almighty. So he has received God's word. He has rededicated to do God's will. And thirdly, say it with me, he's had revival in worship of the Almighty. What did he have? And this takes us from verse 6 all the way to verse 15. The God is the God of Bethel. We've pointed that out. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan. That is Bethel. He and all the people that were with him. You know, when you read the accounts of people getting saved in the New Testament, like the jailer, Philippian jailer, it was his whole house that got saved. Amen. I love how God does that. He comes in and he doesn't just stop with the individual. He changes the whole house. I love it when God does that. Here, everybody's with Jacob. They're all getting back to God. And he built there an altar. Is that what God told him to do? He's doing what God told him to do. And he called the place, note this. What did he call it? El Bethel. This is indicative, I think, of the true heart change that has occurred in Jacob's life. Plenty of commentators pointed it out. I think uh, Dr. Morris has some good comments on it. I won't take the time to share those with you. But here's the difference. Before, it was simply the house of God. Now, as Jacob gets back, he's not coming back just to the house of God. He's coming to the God of the house of God. See the difference in the object of his worship? In the object of who he's serving? It's God. It's not just the religiousness of it. It's not just going through the motions of it. It's not just, well, I'm going to go to church, read my Bible, and pray, and everything's going to get better. He found God. And if you want things to get better in your life... You need to find God the way Jacob did. Don't just come to Bethel. Come to El Bethel. Get back to God. I have plenty of people that talk to me. You know, they, they find out I'm a pastor or a chaplain or something like that, or I do things with a prayer caucus, anything that's religiously related, okay? And they'll tell me, you know, it almost with shame. You know, it's like they, they feel like I'm God's messenger there to buffet them or something, and they have to tell me and confess 
I really should go back to church. And I stop them dead in their tracks. I'd love to see them go back to church. I really would. But you know what? That's not what they need at that moment. I stop them dead in their tracks and I say, don't just go back to church. Start here. I'll even be specific and say, start in John. Go find the gospel. Go find your Bible. And yes, I'm not even going to split hairs over what kind of Bible it is at this point. I just want them to read it. I'm praying that it's the King James Bible, but I want them to read it. And so I just tell them, go find your Bible. You have a Bible. Many of them, most of them, nine out of ten of them say, yeah. But you know what? It's all dusty. I tell them, go get that Bible. Start in John. And then when you are seeking the Lord in the Bible, then you start asking Him, where do you want me to go to church? Get back here first. I know that's true, because that's how God did it in my own life. Had I done it the other way and said, I need to go to church before I got into the Bible, I think it would have messed things up. I really do. Because there's no telling what church I would have tried to fit myself into that I didn't belong in. And then I would wonder why all God's people are such sinners, like with Simeon and Levi. And I would be totally turned away from God. And maybe never even pick up His Word. But I started in the right place because I started here with the Word. And then He led me to the people of God. And that was all through the Spirit. And God does things in mysterious ways. But here, it's the God of Bethel, the God of Bethel. For a second time, Jacob comes to Bethel, where more than 20 years earlier, God first met him. But now we see a Jacob who's gone from Bethel to El Bethel, from the house of God to the God of the house of God. God now is first. God's house is second. Now, tucked right in the middle of this, lest we get the wrong idea about following God. Life Job said, man is born of few days and full of troubles. I want to tell you, when you get right with God, it doesn't mean everything's just going to magically get better and you're not going to have to deal with any more sorrow in your life. Because right after this, we're told about Deborah. There's a couple of Deborahs in the Bible. Did you know that? Here's one of them. Deborah, oh, you talk about, this would be a great character study. I don't know how much you'd be able to find on her. But just, just faithfully there. I believe she's been there since Rebecca left left Haran, Haran. I believe that she came back when when Rebecca came to go marry Isaac. She was Rebecca's nurse. I believe that this was the lady that, you know, when Jacob and Esau were little babies, would have nursed them. This is Deborah. She's known Jacob all his life. Where did she come from? How did she get in the picture? She didn't. She surely didn't go with him up there to Laban's house. No, he left with nothing but a staff in his hand. And now all of a sudden she's just here. May I submit to you that I think, I believe, now I don't have any chapter verse on this, but I believe Rebecca's already died. Jacob never saw his mother again after he left. You keep that in mind. Sin has consequences, and every time you sin, it hurts. Remember Rebecca. The last time we hear her talking about Jacob, she says, Jacob was so concerned about it. I don't want to do this, Mom. Uh, the curse is going to be on me. She says, the curse be on me if anything goes wrong. She took his curse. We never hear how it worked out. Silent. Where is she? I suppose. Suppose. Okay, note that. 
suppose she passed away. Deborah, through this time, you know, how long have they been in Shechem? I guarantee you Jacob didn't just stay up there for 10 years and not go visit their old dad and mom. He's been visiting Isaac and Rebekah. He's been in and out down there, and Deborah finds out he's there. And when Rebekah passes away, I surmise that Deborah went up and joined him, and she's with him at Bethel, and that's where she dies. The sagely wisdom that she would have all those years the hoary head taken down to the grave. Deborah, as we serve the Lord, we try to get right with God. It doesn't change the fact that we are all under the curse, and every one of us will face death. And sometimes we bear a sorrow of heart. Deborah, known Jacob all his life, here, you know, almost a grandmother figure, I would guess, to Jacob's children, the grief, the sorrow. But I'm glad a chapter doesn't end there because Jacob gets a new beginning. Look at verses 9 through 13. He's buried Deborah's right under the tree at Bethel, and it's the tree of mourning. That's what that name means. A new beginning is given. Of course, chapter nine, uh, chapter 35 and verse number 9, God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padanaram and blessed him. God says there's a new chapter. We've dealt with the grief. We're moving on. God's going to write a new chapter. Isn't that how he does it? That's how he did it for Abraham. That's how he's going to do it for Jacob, if Jacob will let him. Those who have been made joint heirs with Christ, Dr. Morris said, of all things, joint heirs of all things, Hebrews 1-2, we have a noble calling, great responsibilities. The strongest incentive to holy living is the comprehension of our holy calling. Paul talked about being the prisoner of the Lord. The verse that my pastor preached on the night I served, I surrendered my life to missions and mission work and doing whatever God wanted me to do was Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Jacob, there's a new chapter. Verses 9-13, through 13, the covenant promises are renewed. Uh, everything that he said to Abraham, he's going to say to Jacob here, and the torch is passed on to this new beginning. I would encourage you, we don't have time to do it tonight because I'm taking more time from you than I should. I would encourage you, in your devotional time, sit down with Genesis 17 and Genesis 35. Do that. Read them together. Read chapter 17 a couple of times. Read chapter 35 a couple of times. And then look at the comparison between what El Shaddai did for Abraham and what El Shaddai did for Jacob in those two chapters. And you'll see the continuation of the new generation. With Deborah, I think it's an indicator. Moses is telling us old things are passing away. Jacob is beginning a new chapter. As Jacob life, Jacob's life winds down, we're getting ready to transition to the next patriarch of major discussion and major narrative in Genesis. And this is the end of the world. Deborah's gone, and Jacob's beginning new with this promise from God, and out of his loins will come a king. That's an interesting thought. Let's connect the dots here. Let's connect the dots. Three times it's prophesied for Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob. 
three times it's prophesied that a king would come from their loins, in essence. What God tells Jacob here. Let's think this through. Jacob, his first wife, was Leah. She had four sons. Okay, if, if it's going to come from Jacob's loins, I would say it's got to come from Jacob and Leah, number one, because that's the marriage that God recognizes, right? Okay, let's put old Reuben on the stand. Reuben, you're going to measure up, right? You're the strength of Jacob, the firstborn. You're going to make it, right? You're going to be the one through whom the king comes. Well, this chapter closes with Reuben doing one of the most heinous things anybody could ever do. Reuben, no. Chapter 34 has just given us grueling details about the next two in line. Simeon and Levi. Guilty before God. Nope. So you see what Michael's doing here? It's getting ready for Jacob's prophecy in chapter 49 that he's about to say a scepter shall arise from Reuben. No. Simeon? No. Levi? No. Where shall the scepter arise? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Who, by the way, has, is going to have you know, a rocky life as well. But one of the most times, that you, the greatest times that he shines is when he puts his neck on the neck of Joseph. We'll see that when we get there in the life of Joseph. But I would just close by posing this question to you. You read how Jacob responded. God appeared to him. And let's read it because there's something that's different here that didn't happen back in chapter 28. Two out of the three did. But there's a third thing that Jacob did here that he didn't do in chapter 28. And I read, after God went up from him, that's Genesis 17, that's just like after Abraham and God communed, God went up from him. So chapter uh, 35, verse 14, Jacob, what did he do? He set up a pillar in place where he talked with him. He did that in 28. Even a pillar of stone. And this is what's added. He poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. See the three things he did? Two of them he did in 28. The thing that he didn't was he didn't pour a drink offering out. I just want to say this. We have one of the most giving churches. We do. There are people in our church that give out of their hurt. They are sacrificial givers. I know there's people that come to our church that they probably don't give anyway. But the reason we're in existence is because those that do give, they give deep. They give faithfully. They're not giving it to me as the pastor. They're not giving it to any person in the church. They are giving that to God. When you are worshiping God the way Jacob is worshiping God, you are going to bring your offerings. Plain and simple. This is the first time a drink offering is mentioned in the Bible. That tells me it's even before the law of Moses. It's before Leviticus. You know, the tithing of Abraham, Genesis 14, that's before the law as well. There are just certain things you do, tithes and offerings, just a way that you give back to God for all that he's given you. It makes sense. The drink offering is one of the oldest offerings that we have recorded in all the pages of the Holy Scripture. When somebody serves God, they give. They give freely. They give an offering. And they say, Lord, it might not be money. It might be something else that the Lord has put. This is a drink offering. 
Well, remember, Jacob said, I'll give you a tenth of everything, God. He said he would give him tithes of all. And Jacob here pouring out a drink offering in a dry and thirsty land. Water is precious. This drink offering, this is not something to be taken lightly. I think this was sacrificial on Jacob's part. I think this was something that was precious to him. I would compare this kind of offering to, to an alabaster box being broken open over our Lord's head and his feet as he prepared to face his death. Pouring it all out, holding nothing back. Friend, it's time to get back to Bethel. It's time to worship God. And I submit to you this question. What is he worth to you? What is he worth to you? Jacob said he's worth it all. He's worth it all. A.W. Tozer certainly devotional, so I'll give you a closing thought here in conclusion. Jacob, after his memorable experience in the wilderness, where he saw a ladder set upon earth and God ascending above it, standing above it, called the place of his encounter Bethel, which means house of God. Beth means house of hell and God. Many years later, he had suffered and sinned and repented and discovered the worthlessness of all earthly things, had been conquered and blessed by God at Peniel, and had seen the face of God in an hour of spiritual agony. He renamed the place El Bethel, which means the God of the house of God. Historically, the place was always known as Bethel, but in Jacob's worshiping heart, it would forever be El change is significant. Jacob had shifted his emphasis from the house to the one whom he met there. God himself now took the center of his interest. He had at last been converted from a place to God himself. 